Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST-177, the HR release, Keep Out of Reach. It's a 12-inch by HR. We're back with HR again. We've had his releases on for a number of recent episodes. But to help us continue our effort to fill out the story, we have a special guest this episode, too. Yeah, Mark Riffle's on the show. It's so cool to have Mark on. He's one of the guitarists on this release, and he really leaves his mark on the HR band for this release. So, um, No very, pun intended? No pun. Well, half a pun okay. intended. Medium pun. Medium pun. How about that? Sure. Uh, but very cool, and it's a great interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brent, can I hit you with a couple of spiels? Show enough. So the first one is on the SS tree. Just wanted to note that Field Day released a digital single. It, the song is called Invitation. It's not on the 2.07 inch or opposite land 12 inch, but it sounds like those tracks. So it totally fits with this this era of uh, the post Nasty guys. It is also on a new Unity Worldwide compilation called Strength Through Unity which is a benefit for Con Island. I don't know much about it. I did some Googling, and it looks like it's a skate park and venue in Leipzig, Germany. So uh, definitely a good cause there. So go snag the new Field Day track. Also wanted to mention, Brant, something new from Raymond Pettibone. Okay. So early last year, like this is over a year ago, I mentioned a book that was coming out. It was supposed to be out April of last year on... Dave Zwerner Books is the the publisher, I think. And it was called Spit the Words. Mm. It's a rereading of Raymond Pettibone's Twitter. It was 72 pages, is what it says, like, on the interweb. And uh, by this guy, Andrew Durbin, who apparently is a a poet, too. I looked him up. But uh, I was interested in checking it out. It never came out, as far as I can tell. But don't worry. Out Now is a new book called suck on this the essential raymond pettibone twitter compilation it's over 650 pages long it's it's on pcp press apparently uh pettibone made something like over eighteen thousand digital comments from february 2011 to february 2021 and i guess they're all here in this book You've probably checked out some of his tweets and whatnot. He definitely is, uh, I I guess, kind of pushing the envelope on language and commentary, just like in his captions in his artwork. So if you're into Raymond Pettibone, might as well read 18,000 of his tweets. (laughs) Might as well. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Brant, I wondered if you could take me to a particular zone that we all love so dear. Sure could. Are are we talking about the comm zone? (laughs) We sure are. Now, this is a bit of a spoiler alert for the interview, but I wanted to do a comp spiel on this comp that you and Mark talk about called Bouncing Babies. Can I do that? Yeah. All right. So, Bouncing Babies. It's a comp from 1984 on Fountain of Youth Records. Many of the tracks are recorded at Inner Ear and tons of ties to Discord bands on this comp. Now, 
I've had it for a while and I've never really taken a deep dive until I listened to the interview and uh, I was surprised at all of the things that I was able to learn just by going through these tracks. So I'm going to run through them rapid fire and tell you who's on here and bl hopefully blow your mind with some connections. Can I do that? Yeah. All right. Here we go. And I'm going to go through all the tracks. Okay. All of them. Yeah, okay. Well, that's what we do on the comp zone. All right. Here we go. Track number one. The band is Dove. Great band. The song is Ambivalence. Uh, you can get a comp of theirs on CD on Lost and Found, that Germany label. Melodic speed punk with a cool um, kind of fast acoustic outro too. This is Tony and Eric from Red Sea, a classic uh, DC Discord band like on those uh, Flex Your Head comp tracks. Peter Moffat, also drummer from Wool and Burning Airlines on here, to name a couple of the bands he's in. Love the Dove, and you would like it too, Brand, because mm. it's got a little bit of a metal tinge. Track number two, Crippled Pilgrims. The song is Black and White. They had a 12-inch called Handout on Fountain of Youth in 84 and an LP Underwater in 85. Very cool, jangly, paisley pop rock. And this is a different version of this song, Black and White, that is on the great new comp, Strum and Thrum, the American Jangle Underground 85 to 87 on Captured Tracks. I had no idea that crippled pilgrims like i've been listening to this strum and thrum i had no idea until i went back to bouncing babies that they're on here and it's a great track crippled pilgrims dan joseph uh went on to 9353 or was in it and then mitch parker from gi was in crippled pilgrims so check that out for sure and then track number three body count bull in a china shop with none other than mark riffle who we'll uh, hear from in the interview from the hr band Hey, Ryan, uh, I have to interject real quick. Two things before I forget to tell you. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't mention this in the interview, but he does talk about his current band, the Tommy Models. Yep. Peter Moffat played drums on the EP. Oh, no way. Yeah. Dove Connection, nice. Yeah. And uh, he sent me a re-recording of that song, done by the Tommy Models. Oh, Ambivalence? No, the Body Count song. Oh, he sent you a re-release of Bull in a China Shop done by... The Tommy Models. Oh, nice. Very cool. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Like, look, I'm only on the third track. There's way more connections. Hang in there. Um, track number four, Lucky Pierre, Looking Back. It's a rock punk song with saxophone. I can't find anything about them. It might have been a one-off on one of these types of comps. The next track is by Underground Soldier. Sunday Slaughter is the track. Doug Birdzell from Beefeater, Fidelity Jones, and the great band All Scars, who has that wicked record, Early Ambient, on Discord. Brendan Canty was in that band, I think, All Scars. This is a cool track. I can't find anything about their lead singer, Helen, though. It's a, it's a cool track, Underground Soldier. Artificial Peace is next with Frustration, another classic kind of early DC hardcore band. This is Mike Peters, Steve, who would go on to be in Marginal Man. And then it goes to this uh, cool track by this band called Exiled, Guilt Trip. This is DC hardcore, but slower, almost funky. They do have a split 7-inch with Artificial Peace on Fountain of Youth in 83. Dude, hold on. What? Just hold up again. Something else th that I came across in my research. Check this out. Uh, I actually 
was doing a little digging about this too, and maybe you found this, so I hope I'm not scooping you, but the label that that's on, Fountain of Youth, right? Yep. Yeah, so the singer of Exiled, I think he's the singer, uh, Derek Zhu, he he ran the label. He's the singer for Exiled? Yeah. Oh, no way. Yeah, he, I, could, that, I that, couldn't find that. Yeah, that was his label. And then what I found on this kind of website called 30underdc.com. Oh, yeah, that comp, yep. Yeah, well, there's a website too. And, okay. And it's you could easily kill an hour or two scrolling around on there. Like it's a, a discography of like DC labels and bands. So check that out. But um, it says on there at some point fountain of youth entered into a P and D deal with Dutch East India. And the quote on the website is the end result was that the label lost control of its releases. The bands lost control of the tapes and everyone got fucked over. Yeah. That's not the first time I've heard that about Dutch East India. Yeah. Uh, Derek and Alex are the two guys, at least, that put together this comp. There's a good spiel about the reason behind this comp on the back here, but that's cool. I could only just look up really quick. And I mean, when I look at Exiled, it does say the the musicians Derek, Alex, Tom Gordon bass, John Sawalski. So there's definitely more to look out there. Anyways, let's keep going. You ready? Ready. Okay, next is Scream, the great classic Scream tracks, Ultraviolence and Screaming. Uh, we all know what that is. Ne- and then the last track on side A is a band called Glee Club, and the song is Disguise. It's an electronic duo of John Stab and Tom Lyle, both from GI. Kind of cool, actually. Worth checking out. Flip it over. The first track is by Black Market Baby, and the track is Susie Deer. Kind of a Circle Jerks-esque sounding song. They had a a full length called Senseless Offerings on Fountain of Youth in 83. Neil and Keith at one point or the other were in Black Market Baby and they were also in Tesco V's Hate Police. Just to name, you know, one of the many connections for people in Black Market Baby. The next track is Reptile House, Talons and Claws. That's Asa and Daniel from Lungfish. London May, who went on to drum for Dag Nasty, Distorted Pony. Sam Hain and Ministry. Of course, you mentioned Reptile House a few weeks back. They have that great record. Listen to The Power Soul, 1988 Merkin Records. They also have a uh, single on Discord in 85. Um, it's a split between our split release between Discord and Druid Hill Records. Then we get to 9353, which we already mentioned. The song is 10 Witches. This is cool post-punk with a sense of humor i like i like their records i think 9353 were mentioned on an alternatives episode where we had chris bobst on i think does that ring a bell yep um this 9353 has vance bacchus from what band brand i don't know pentagram (laughs) (laughs) and uh dan joseph from crippled pilgrims as well they had one lp at least on Fountain of Youth from 1985 called We Are Absolutely Sure There Is No God. Then it goes to The Last Minute. Infinite Regression is the track. No info. I want more on this. That's cool, gothy, post-punk. It it does mention um, John Harden again. So maybe that is the, the the main artist on this one. Then it goes into a track by a band called Beaver. The song is Punch him in the head which is tom lyle from gi 
speedy punk buzzsaw guitars it's cool next is assault and battery the track is evidence sounds like very classic dc punk members went on to artificial peace marginal man gi there's lots and lots of uh, cross-pollination here but they're apparently in assault and battery was a guy named brian gay and i know him from a band called buzz muscle who put out two cool seven inches i've got the assembler uh single which is awesome uh then it goes to braille party is the band called terrorist uh, they have an album called welcome to maryland from 84 on fountain of youth they've actually got a song on the flip side vinyl fanzine volume two as well again dc punk but it also has like some ska breaks in it and with east bay ray guitars it's uh it's a pretty cool track then we go to void get out of my way again classic dc punk there's that awesome faith void split record of course uh next and kind of the last real track on the record is a gi song dead dog this is kind of trudging gi with some cowbell and iron maiden-esque guitar solos almost what? Yes, exactly. And then the final track, it's not listed on the record or the label, uh, but on Discogs anyways, it lists it as Death Camp 2000. It has like a date and it's called Space 2 Arcade. It's kind of a, a poorly recorded live track and I'm not really sure, you know, it doesn't really sound like much of a song, but it's credited on Discogs and here's where it's interesting to me some of the musicians are dan fleming and jay spiegel from half japanese b-a-l-l gumball velvet monkeys and then dan fleming of course has uh been in wild rats and um he probably has that wild rats connection from his time in dim stars with thurston uh, i don't know but um it's interesting credit not much of a song but i'd love to know more about death camp 2002 hey ryan we're gonna stay are you done I'm done. Okay. Good spiel. We're going to stay in the comp zone because I'm going to go to Live at the Knitting Factory, Volume 2. Ooh, nice. Yeah. Okay. And I'm going to do this really fast because I've got some other spiels too. Uh, we've got this, uh, the band Chunk, a track called Part of the Family. This was right out of the gate, my favorite song. Uh, again, it's Sam Bennett from Semantics on percussion, vocals, and he wrote the song. It's a really cool song. They did release an EP on a label called Lazy Records, and I totally need to track it down. It's great, super percussive. Uh, I don't even know how to describe it. David Simmons, also of a bunch of bands, including God Is My Co-Pilot, plays some kind of cool abstract kid Congo-esque slide on it. Nice. Uh, and then we've got Gary Lucas of the Magic Band, as in... Captain Beefheart's Magic Band. He does a he does a solo National Steel rendition of an Albert Eiler song, Ghosts. Uh, a band called Odd Job looks like a one-off band. Ned Rothenberg on some Skronk and Sax. Sam again on drums. David Weinstein of Carbon on keys, and this totally unhinged vocalist Shelley Hirsch, who we've seen before on Elliot Sharp's Land of the Yahoos. Ah, right. Mori Frith Dresser, Orbital Inversion. Aiku Mori, uh, most of these musicians have played on so many projects that kind of just picked out whatever jumped out at me. Uh, so apologies if I'm missing important stuff. She's a drummer. She played in Zorn's Electric Masada, a bunch of other stuff. Mark is a double bassist, and Fred Frith is on guitar. It's super avant-garde, 
likely improvised, but totally cool. Myra Melford's solo blues piano piece, uh, Sonny Chirac has a killer jam on here, Dick Dogs, and the bassist is Melvin Gibbs. Not surprising at all, based on what you've covered so far. Yep. Markley Bennett, that's Sam Bennett, and turntablist Christian Markley, who we just heard about on the Fred Frith Technology of Tears album. Yeah. Odd Job again with a cool track called Love Buds. Joey Barron, primarily, uh, he's a drummer in Electric Masada and Naked City, uh, but this is like a solo keyboard and electronics piece. And Glenn Velez, a percussionist along with some, you know, like three or four other percussionists, a flute player, Steve Gorn. They end the the comp with two two in a row of like some cool world music type jams. Good stuff. You definitely piqued my interest when you mentioned it last uh, last episode. I got to track those down. Yeah. Okay, Ryan, I got to give a podcast shout out. Do it. Okay, the Mike Herrera podcast. I haven't really checked it out too much. He's from the band MXPX, which I really know nothing about. But he had he had Carl Alvarez on. And oh, it's, no way. it's a great interview, man. I just love it when random bands get name dropped on podcasts. Yeah. Like I'm always pausing to make notes. Uh, he talks about touring with all uh, back in the day and like some of the bands they toured with. Big Drill Car gets a mention. Hester Prynne. You ever heard of that band? No. Yeah. That's one of the ones I wrote down. Wow. My Name. Do you know them? Oh, yeah. Yep. C- CZ band. Yep. The Gits. Uh, he talks about the Melvins. Apparently, he's a big Melvins fan. Uh, Toadies. Yes. Wretch, right. Wretch Like Me. Uh, he's got there's connections with High on Fire. Zeke. Owned and operated records, he talks about. Uh, Massacre Guys. He gives DOA a nod. He talks about bass influences like The Stranglers and No Means No. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He talks about this longtime band he's had back home called Endless Monster, which he's the guitarist in and says uh, they've got some stuff that they're going to be putting out. Nice. Yeah, they've had stuff in the can for a while. So that's a great interview. And Ryan, Greg Norton was on Conan Neutron's Protonic yes. Reversal. Yeah. Did you listen that. to it? No, not yet. Okay, so they get into all kinds of stuff. They go through the entire Husker du discography. He tells a bunch of great stories that I'm not going to spoil here. A really cool factoid about Double Nickels that I'm not going to spoil for people, but you should check it out. I've never heard it before. Uh, he says there's a second Gang Font record that's been in the can for a while that they might be oh, putting out. Cool. Yeah, I like that. And Ryan, they're currently working on a double LP of live Husker Du material for release sometime this year, live from Jay's Longhorn. Oh, no way. Yeah. Cool. What label did he say? No, he didn't say. Mm, I wonder if it's Numero again. That'd be good. Yeah. They do such a good quality product. It wouldn't surprise me because he does praise Numero for their work on the box set in the episode. Oh, yeah. Ryan, podcast pal Michael T. Fournier has a new issue of his Cabildo quarterly literary journal and it features an excerpt from the dale nixon book now we're grilling with gas my journey from first call session musician to undisputed cookout king of southern california as heard on the you don't know mojack podcast no way so you can find it on policymaker.bandcamp.com 
Uh, there's other cool stuff up there, like his Zisk zine, which he describes as the baseball zine for people who hate baseball zines, as well as his one-page monthly policymaker zine. Cool stuff from a great writer. Yeah. Did, uh, did Carl Alvarez mention the tippy-toe at all? No. No? Because he kind of has a bit he of a tippy-toe does tippy-toe, yeah. yeah. Yyeah, yeah. No, funny, funny. Would have thought when that'd we, come from Carl. When we have him on for Hallraker, I'll ask him. Ryan, speaking of great writers, uh, a friend of Michael's and a friend of ours, and as similar to Michael, a fellow Razorcake contributor, all-around great dude Jim Ruland has a new edition of his online newsletter, Message from the Underground, or sorry, Message from the Underworld, and his timing is perfect. He went back to his hometown of Falls Church, Virginia, uh, but he did not know the history behind local studio Q Recordings until he started researching for his forthcoming SST book. Nice. Imagine that, Ryan. He grew up right around there. If I'm remembering right what he told me, he even said like he delivered papers right past Q Studios as a kid. Oh, dude. Yeah. Anyways, he went to Q and took some photos and wrote a little teaser about it. Uh, there's old pics on his on his blog, uh, like of the original studio, and an amazing photo. You can see it on his Instagram from the studio wall. Uh, as far as I can tell, like a new picture that he took. Present day. Uh, present day that has framed LPs of the Zion Train record, It's About Love, the Beef Eater 12 inch. No way. Yeah. The whole olive, olive tree catalog. Yeah. Cool, <laughs> eh? That's awesome. Yeah. Couple more things, Ryan. Today, I watched the Voivod Hypercube Sessions number two. They do Is that like a live live cast thing? It's in their rehearsal studio, the Hypercube. They've oh, done yeah. two of them now. I, When we had the Fred Frith episode on, he and I were talking about these online concerts, and I mentioned that I haven't done any, which I was, I had forgotten. I did the first one back in August. This is the second one, and they're doing a third one. So this one uh, is, was Nothing Face, front to back. And then next, or this later this month, they're doing one of my faves, probably my favorite Voivod record, Dimension Hotras, front to back. Wow. You could buy them both as a combo, which I did, or you could still you can still get tickets for the Dimension one. Really good. Uh, the band like intros the songs and tells little stories about them. And it's pretty cool. Like the the two I using air quotes now, new guys, uh, Chewy and Rocky, are like our age, mid forties. <laughs> both saw both tell stories about seeing Voivod for the first time on the Nothing Face tour. And like our, I mean, to be able to play that music, you almost have to be a Voivod fan, especially mm-hmm. the guitar playing. Yeah. And like they're, they're both lifelong Voivod fans. They talk about in the interview, like Chewy, the guitar player, he transcribed, I think all of their records. You can buy like tab books. Holy and, crap. Yeah. Bass and guitar. And like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> the the bass player Rocky's holding one up and he's going, you know how I learned this record in, able, in order to, to do this show? From this tab book. <laughs> and, le- <laughs> and afterwards, um, there was a Zoom meet and greet with the band. Yeah. And, and it had like Jason Newstead, who played in Voivod for a while, was on it. Right. Eric right. Forrest, E-Force, their bass player in the 90s, he was on it. And they all took questions and talked about Voivod. 
It was really cool, man. Right on. And Ryan, uh, the guy, uh, Felipe Balexar, I think is his name, he made the Chuck Schulander uh, death documentary, Death by Metal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he announced he's making a Voivod documentary, which is long overdue, called We Are Connected. One more thing real quick, Ryan. Remember back when I was getting shit off my phone and I did my my numbers and I talked about the band 10-Minute Warning? The yes. Seattle band? Duff McKagan. Yeah, well, he was in the band for a while. He was in the band originally and then he came back and played on their later Sub Pop era album. And I was talking about they have an unreleased album from 84. Well, it's coming out in October. Nine songs, 40 minutes, thousand copies, mixed and mastered off the original tapes by Jack and Dino. It's called This Could Be Heaven. Wow. And speaking of Duff, his pre-10-minute warning band, The Living, recently found and released, re-released their 1982 EP on Seattle's Loose Grove Records. Great early punk rock from Seattle featuring hmm. Duff McKagan. Cool. That's it for me, man. Let's get into this 12-inch. History Lesson, Part 1. So, like I said, we've had some releases by HR on in the, the last few weeks, a fair amount, actually. We It's kind of started with the Ross Michael album, Zion Train, SST-168. We also had the HR tapes on 171 with Ho Gonzalez. Uh, great interview there. And then on 173, the Now You Say 12-inch with Jim Ebert, who was at the board at Q Studios, now that you mention it. Um, and now we're getting into the Keep Out of Reach tracks, which we did cover these tracks before on the HR Tapes episode. And these ones really stuck out then. And they really, it's really interesting listening to them again, like doing a an ultra deep listen, just the three of them over and over. Like you get into an in the interview with Mark, but there is so much going on on these tracks, man. Yeah. I was kind of thinking the same thing. Like when I heard these, you know, a few weeks back, it was tacked onto the end of it's about love, right? On the HR tapes. Right. That this week, just listening to these three, three tracks, I think gave me a even deeper appreciation of them for sure. Yeah. So this is the last release of the original HR band era or the Olive Tree era, I guess you could call it. This was released as Olive Tree Records 105. I think it was the label's second last release. It was released in 1986 as a 12-inch single. Re-released the following year by SST as a 12-inch and mini CD. And a full-size CD. Yeah. I don't know when that was, though. I think that might have been later. Ah. The band is, of course, HR, a.k.a. Joseph, on... Larynx Vibrations, his brother Earl Hudson on drums, Judah Two, a.k.a. Jose Gonzalez on bass, and then the two guitarists, Mark Riffle and Tico Zamora on guitars. It's weird, Ryan, if you read the Finding Joseph I book or watch the documentary, this era of the band has almost been kind of written out of the history books. They leap right over it, for sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this stuff was almost like a collective, this era. You know, like you've got David Byers and Kenny Dredd kind of coming in and out and organizing and producing. And I think David Byers was briefly in this era of the band, like with a three-guitar lineup, very briefly. But then, as you'll hear in the interview, like 
the sole guitarists in this era were Mark Riffle and Tico Zamora. Mm-hmm. As you'll hear in the interview right away here, Ryan, there's a bootleg of this lineup dating back to March of 85, Connection Hall, Norfolk, Virginia. On a side note, I was doing some Googling to try and see if there was anything about this show online, and I stumbled across a website called hardcorenorfolk.com. Uh, the write-up on the main page was talking about the early scene and the venues. It says, Mike Anarchy came up with the idea for an all-ages venue that was big enough to attract national big-name punk bands and have the local bands warm up for them. Connection Hall was where they had gospel revivals in the back, and they had a religious store in the front that sold Bibles, candles, and other trinkets. Mike Anarchy organized the shows and was responsible for the concept. He booked the bands, ran the door, got the PA. It was his idea and his baby. And on this website, Ryan, there's a trailer for a documentary called Norfolk Hardcore, and it looks like there's a CD soundtrack as well. And, ah. and in the trailer for the documentary, there's a photo of this flyer for this gig that I'm talking about. Uh, and it's really too bad this recording isn't available. It's super high quality for a bootleg, and the band is just red hot. Mm. Lots of stuff off It's About Love. They play Power of the Trinity. An amazing Happy Birthday My Son closes the show with Al Walker coming out and doing this kind of extended dub reggae thing from Zion Train. And there's a song on there that Mark mentions in the interview called Godly Against Evil, which was an unreleased track. Uh, Just awesome, man. Uh, The two guitarists are just fucking shredding. (laughs) Like... (laughs) Yeah, it's really too bad that this this is all the, the studio recordings we have of this lineup. Yeah, well, I mean, hopefully we can uh, help give this version of the bands their due, right? Yeah, man. Because I think, I think uh, a lot of people, we've talked about this before, but like I think the HR record charge, like that's the one that is most well known. And I think these 12 inches kind of get forgotten. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I I think most people know the 1987 record, Human Rights. And like, as as we've said before, like this stuff, this and It's About Love blow that record totally out of the water. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The synthesizer just kills that record. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. For me, like these two tracks might be the, the best thing HR did as a solo artist. Might be, might be. We'll uh, we'll see though, because we're gonna get some more, much more HR on the show yet yeah. to come. Yeah. But so far, this is right at the top. Yeah. Let's throw it to Mark. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Mark Riffle. Mark, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Okay, we're talking about your time with the HR band, but previous to that, did you grow up in D.C., Virginia? Where are you from? I'm originally from uh, Washington, D.C., but I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland. When you started playing in bands, were you, were you in high school? Yes, I was. Uh, I was actually, uh, my first band was a band called Body Count. Not to be confused with uh, Ice-T's band, Body Count. We were probably way before them, mm-hmm. uh, the early 80s, 81, 82. I have seen, I've never heard Body Count. I don't know if there's any recordings you can... Tell me about that. But I read the description that I read of Body Count was a ska punk band. Is that accurate? That is, that is, 
That is correct. And we only released, uh, we were on a compilation album called Bouncing Babies, mm-hmm. which was on Fountain of Youth record label. And we had a Sky song called uh, Bull in a China Shop, okay. which was very popular. Got a lot of radio play on college radio stations back then. I think that was uh, 82, 1982 when that was released. Okay, now are you playing with bands from the DC punk scene in Body Count? Yes, okay. yes. Uh, we played a lot of uh, the normal shows, 930 Club, Wilson Center, Landsberg, open for a lot of different bands. Yeah, back then it was kind of uh, the norm to, uh, if you knew the right people, uh, fortunately... Uh, uh, my really good friend and mentor, Dave Byers, who was the original guitarist in HR, helped us a lot. He really liked body count, liked the music. And we were a two-tone, you know, sky reggae uh, punk band. Mm-hmm. So he helped us a lot, get us into a lot of uh, pretty big shows in the, the punk era in Washington, D.C. Hmm. His band was Outrage? That's correct. Okay. Uh, Dave Byers was in a go-go band called Outrage with uh, a couple other guys, Doc Knight, Jeff Wags, and Kenny Dredd. Mm-hmm. Okay, so like, tell me some of the shows that you played. Like, what, what's, what are your standout shows that you played with Body Count? I think uh, probably the one that stands out the most is when we opened for Agent Orange uh, at the Wilson Center. And that was probably our last show uh, because our bass player, Mark Macho, uh, was going, uh, he got accepted to a Parsons School of Art in New York City. Mm. So um, that was our last like farewell show. And it was also the first show that our current drummer, Scott Garrett, uh, played with us. And Scott, I don't know if you're familiar with Scott, but he went on to play with Dag Nasty, The Colts, uh, Mission UK, all these other you know big bands uh, out in L.A., Mm-hmm. So, but he's back now. He's actually playing with uh, with the Tommy models now. Now, when you say like a ska band, did you have horns? We had uh, one saxophone player, hmm. and uh, that was Doc Knight, uh, who was the saxophone player in uh, Outrage, okay. the go-go band Outrage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we we played other shows too. We played at the Nine Thirty Club. Uh, we opened for um, Black Market Baby and Iron Cross. And we played at the Landsberg building, which was another kind of big venue. A lot of shows for that, that time period. Like It was like a year uh, when there was a lot of uh, the DC hardcore scene was like at its like true uh, essence of, uh, you know, where all the music was coming from at that time before it kind of died out. I'm really curious about the scene within a scene, because when you, at least from my perspective, when I, think about the DC scene, I'm mostly mm-hmm. thinking about Discord bands. But like, <laughs> it seems like when I say a scene within a scene, there are so many bands, and for some reason, maybe you have some insight as to why a lot of these bands that I'm going to name barely recorded. I'm talking Outrage, uh, The Enzymes, The Psychotics, uh, Press Mob, Static Disruptors, well, Static, Static Disruptors and Outrage were the same band. They just, that was the same band that Dave Byers was in. It was a go-go band. 
Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with DC Go-Go mm-hmm. music. Yep. Um, I assume you are. So they, they just changed their name from Static Disrupters to uh, Outrage. Yeah, that's, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, for us, I think it was a matter of timing. And also, I always kind of got the vibe that we were from the other side, literally from the other side of the railroad tracks, because we were all from Silver Spring. Uh, and Silver Spring was a rough and tumble kind of area. And Discord was more, you know, they were, uh, you know, from the other side of um, D.C., like the upper northwest, right. um, you know. Uh, so um, and they're all great guys. I know all those people. They're all great people. But uh, I don't know if that had any bearing on it. But I always kind of got the vibe that, you know, maybe, you know, we just didn't fit into their you know, scheme of music or, you know, I don't want to say it was a click, uh, like, but, you know, we were young, uh, teenagers, you know, adolescents. And, uh, sometimes, uh, there's kind of that environment happens for sure. I know um, what you mean. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, it, that, that has a lot. And, you know, it really came down to, uh, I guess what bands, uh, they liked also and what they preferred to have on discord. Right. So, you know, that was, you know, really, I guess uh, at the core of it was probably a decision made by Ian. I think Ian and Jeff were probably the core members of Discord label. And, you know, uh, they're great guys. Uh, it's just one of those things, you know, sometimes uh, it just doesn't work out. And, you know, uh, that's just the way it goes. Yeah. Now, were you hanging out at the Dread House? When I, when I got into HR, yeah. Dave Byers uh, was my, like, mentor guitar wise mm-hmm. uh he was a accomplished jazz guitarist uh and uh, so he kind of took me under his wing and um showed me a lot you know taught me a lot on the guitar i i think that what you're referring to um was something i probably uh was closer to when i was in hr right not before that gotcha david byers actually taught you guitar or gave you some lessons gave me a lot of lessons yeah yeah okay i learned a lot from him yeah yeah and he's an interesting guitar player like you said you can hear that there's a jazz influence but on these records like he's almost like a dr no style shredder yeah if you listen to the first hr album um that's pure dave byers right there yeah the tone uh, the uh, the melodic uh, you know licks that he plays. Uh, he's just he was just an amazing guitarist. Yeah, was he self-taught? Uh, no, I think Dave was actually he was a trained you know jazz guitarist. I don't know where he went to school, but he was he was you know he was a trained guitarist. Did he teach lessons, like uh, you know? No, regularly. No. You know what? He just no. I think he saw us play somewhere and uh, befriended us and befriended me and we became really good friends and uh he just kind of took me under his wing and said you know come over and i'll show you some stuff and help you you know improve your guitar playing mm-hmm. so i think a lot of the way i play today uh, is influenced by uh, dead buyers also he had a big impact on my uh on my playing now i'm assuming it was david who brought you in to the band into hr yeah yes i can remember like it was yesterday it was um 
he called me and he said, do you want to, and this is like right when uh, body count had broken up. He said, do you want to join HR? And I was like, yes, please. Sure. <laughs> so yeah, I was, uh, I was, uh, very happy when I got that phone call. How soon after you joined, were you recording? Uh, the keeping, uh, the keeping out of reach, uh, EP was probably recorded probably a year after we actually had uh, been together. Hmm. How does Tico come in? Was he just on the recording or was he part of the band at the same time? as No, you? no, no. So Tico Zamora, I went to school with, uh, Tico's sister, Lisa, and, uh, he was, his father is a very famous flamingo guitar player in Washington, D.C. Mm. And Tico is also a very uh, accomplished flamingo guitar player. So I knew that he was also had a huge interest in rock music. And he was also playing in like cover bands, Van Halen, kind of um, bands like Van Halen and UFO and Scorpions. Mm. So uh, when I got into HR... Uh, Joseph asked me if he if I knew of another guitarist because they wanted two guitars, and I said I know somebody. Let me give him a call. And I didn't really know Tico. I knew his sister, and um, I gave him a call, and uh, I brought over the demo tape for the first album. Uh, he learned it, and he came over to our rehearsal spot, and uh, from there we just started rehearsing. It just clicked. Mm. You know, we just started. You know, and we used to rehearse four or five days a week, uh, you know, four or five hours a day. Wow. Where, it, was, it was very intense. Where were you rehearsing? <laughs> At my mother's house in Silver Spring, Maryland. <laughs> David Byers was up. He himself was out of the band at this point then. Yeah. Uh, I guess he chose to uh, go in a different direction. I, I think he wanted to focus more on uh, outrage. Mm. And um, so he stepped down and uh, Tico and myself uh, stepped in and took over the reins of the band guitar wise. Okay. Kenny Dredd wasn't playing guitar at all at this point. The only time Kenny Dredd that I know of ever played guitar in HR was on the last day that we recorded that EP. Mm -hmm. uh, and he came in and, and had an idea to play a scratch guitar at the end of uh, keeping out of reach. So it's maybe like a 30 second, like little scratch guitar he plays on the record. He he never rehearsed with us. He never played with us. Uh, if he ever played with HR, I have no knowledge of that. Okay. Start to finish, how long would you say that lineup lasted? Of I, and to get make sure I have the lineup right, it's you and Tico on guitars, mm -hmm. HR of course on vocals, or Joseph. Uh, Joseph, yeah. And Jose on bass and Earl on drums. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I had known Jose uh, previous. Uh, he was in a band called The Mob mm -hmm. from uh, New York City. And so uh, when I was in Body Count, we used to go up and through Dave Byers, go up and play shows that Jose was actually putting on. And uh, that's how I met originally met Jose. Uh, uh -huh. So I knew him previously. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, that was the core of the band, the nucleus of the band. You know, once we learned the first album, uh, rehearsing it, you know, over a week or a couple weeks, uh, we started, we'd rehearse all week and then we'd be on the road playing up and down the East coast. Mm, tell me about so, that. Uh, it was interesting. Um, 
would play Atlanta, mostly like college towns in North Carolina, South Carolina, New York City. And I had a uh, this orange and white VW van, 72 VW van. And uh, we just drove up and down the highway and, you know, rehearsed all week and played on the weekends. And it was uh, interesting. We had a lot of uh, interesting uh, adventures on the road. Um, I think probably the most scary, and I think I was just very young and uh, I was probably 21. And um, I wasn't really thinking, you know, about all the consequences for certain things. But uh, whenever we would go to Atlanta, there was um, somebody there who had, was, I guess, uh, cultivating marijuana, like really high quality marijuana, mm-hmm. which back then we called Centomia. Now, I don't, I don't smoke marijuana, um, but I, I think it should be legalized and everything, but I, I don't smoke marijuana. But so back then, marijuana was like uh had seeds in it and it was just really poor quality marijuana and the the marijuana we got in atlanta was uh, really good quality and so one time we were driving back and i know they had purchased you know because it was it's part of the rastafarian religion uh marijuana is part of it um so um we were driving back and the one of the tires in my car blew out so um, I went to change it, and this is in South Carolina on I-95, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, I went to change it, and I realized that I didn't have the correct Allen uh, wrench to take the, the lug nuts off the tire. Mm-hmm. So I was freaking out, yeah, because here I here we were, you know, sitting on I-95 in the middle of the day, and you know, it it, it it could have been a really bad situation if, like, a state trooper would have pulled up. No kidding. You know? Yeah. Because it, yeah. So, but you're a heat, you're sitting scared. in a heat score for sure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, um, you know, those guys were very experienced about traveling and very cognitive of that fact. So they all like kind of went up and like hid in the embankment, you know, in the woods, kind of like until. And I ran up over the embankment. This is the first house I got to. And I knocked on the door and I asked the gentleman who lived there, I said, could you help me? I, I explained the situation. He said, yeah. So we had this huge, you know, big pickup truck and we drove around, came around the front of the highway and he pulled up and he saw, I think he saw one or two of the guys, you know, Joseph or um, Earl or, or maybe Jose and, he kind of like, you know, I could tell that he was, wasn't happy. <laughs> and so he got out, he jacked up my car, changed the tire, tightened it back up and just walked back to his car and didn't say a word to me. And I, you know, I said, thank you, of course. And, but he didn't say a word to me. He was, just, he was just like pissed off, right. you know, and you I told those guys, I said, <laughs> yeah, I said, you know, I said, let me, let's get the hell out of here. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we, uh, got out of there really fast and um, thank goodness nothing happened and we didn't have any uh, run-ins with the law at that time but um, stuff like that you know is always um, you know and I always remember that incident Mm -hmm. you know kind of formulated my opinion on um, uh, the laws against uh, marijuana you know these old 
laws that were created so long ago. And I, I'm not I'm not trying to be political or get into things, but um, like I said, I don't do drugs, so yeah. I don't smoke marijuana. But I think it should be legalized um, and it should be decriminalized uh, because I think uh, a lot of people have suffered. It's you not, know, it's not uh, hurting anybody because of, sure. exactly, and it's it's far uh, less dangerous than um, alcohol. So, mm-hmm. in my opinion. But yeah. that's my humble opinion. But anyway, that's my two cents on that <laughs> subject. But yeah. any standout shows? Like, do you remember what kind of bands you would have been playing with on these shows? Uh, those shows were mostly um, like local bands that would open for us. I, I remember we used to play this place called Metroplex in Atlanta all the time, and it would always be packed. Everywhere we went, it was always sold out. Really, these were the good old days, you know. Today, I don't think that would happen uh, unless you're opening for the Foo Fighters or something, you know? So we were playing Atlanta and um, we were staying at somebody's house. And this is a, just a kind of, uh, not really about the show, more about um, the culture in Atlanta at that time. Mm-hmm. And the people at the house had all these tombstones in their yard, but they weren't like, it wasn't like a graveyard. They had like taken them from the graveyard. <laughs> so Joseph, that bothered me. That bothered everybody in the band, but it especially bothered Joseph. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he told the owner of the house, he says, you need him and Earl, like confronted the guy said, you need to take those back to the graveyard and put them where they belong. You know? So uh, we were playing a double header that night. We were playing Friday and Saturday. And so we played Friday night and went, it was packed crazy good show and actually that show joseph there was like a balcony and like in the middle of uh this one song where it was like a build-up joseph like dropped the mic and just took off and nobody knew where he went and he went upstairs into the balcony and as the song as we were breaking into the next song he jumped over me onto the stage wow. from this balcony <laughs> you know and he told me later, he was like, he was like standing there looking down at me, right? He was like, okay, Mark, don't move. I'm going to jump over you. That's what he was thinking, you know? Because right. he couldn't, have, if I would have moved the wrong direction, a foot in the wrong direction, he would have landed right on top of me. And that would have been probably the end of the show. Yeah. But anyway, that Saturday night, you know, after he confronted the people about the tombstones, he, um, he said to the audience, you know, he said, uh, you know, uh, yeah, this special dedication to all the grave diggers in the house, right? And um, he says, those who disturb the dead, the dead will disturb you. I always remember that so clearly, you know, when he, when he said that. And, um, you know, that didn't go over too well. Yeah. I don't, maybe there was like this whole, like, you know, kind of uh, goth culture in Atlanta at that time. I don't remember, but, but it, it was a bad vibe after that. I think probably the most interesting show, best show we ever played, was uh, at a nightclub in Washington, D.C. called Kilimanjaro's, which was a huge club over in Adams Morgan. And it was for the uh, District of Columbia government uh, D.C. Rape Crisis Center. It was a benefit show. So we opened for a lot of big other bands that were playing that night. Like, you know, go-go band, other go-go bands from D.C., like Trouble Funk and Rare Essence. Mm-hmm. And other, you know, popular R&B acts, because we also had, we in in reality, HR uh, at that time, 
we were also uh, a band called Lion Train. We had two bands, basically. By the time we had gotten to uh, recording uh, the the second uh, HR EP, Keeping Out of Reach, we'd been together probably a year, and Joseph wanted to also have a reggae band, so we had been rehearsing, and we had two different bands, so we could play, and we had like a huge set list, probably 20 songs from both bands, more maybe, probably more, 20, 30 songs. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we had to rehearse. We had to rehearse a lot, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Zion Train or not. They, I think they only released one album. Yeah, I, I am. I was. I didn't know you were in Zion Train, so that's cool. Yep, I was in Zion Train, and um, we would uh, sometimes do shows. Sometimes we wouldn't. It wasn't uh, as big of a deal as HR. Mm-hmm. It was more low key, and we do more low key shows. For me, as a musician. It helped me, it, you know, taught me the discipline you need to have because um, you have to rehearse a lot to have that kind of, uh, you know, musical knowledge mm-hmm. to remember all those songs, you know. Both bands were very tight, you know, musically. Yeah, I suppose you kind of had a bit of a foundation if you were playing in a, you know, a band that had some ska influences to, to be able to play straight up roots reggae. Exactly. And that's exactly, uh, that helped me a lot. Yeah, definitely. Well, those, those were that was our influence, uh, you know, back in the late seventies, early eighties, and bands like the Specials and Madness and you know, UB40 and other you know kind of bands like that from England. Zion Train is interesting because there's so few recordings. Why is that? Where was Zion Train playing a lot of cover material, or was it? It's just one of those things where there was not enough money to record. Do you know why? I don't know why. Uh, I know they put out one uh, album, and all the music was always original, all the tracks we did. And it was pretty much straight up kind of, um, you know, straight reggae kind of dub stuff. And there was another singer, and he also got on stage and kind of chanted with Joseph, and they kind of went through stuff and, you know, busted some rhymes, Mm -hmm. uh, dub style. And... uh, yeah, but I don't know why um, nothing ever really materialized from from that band. Yeah, well, the interesting thing to me about, I've said this before on the, on the podcast, is you hear a lot of people talk about, in relation to the Bad Brains, talking about how, you know, every time HR left, it was because there was conflict over him wanting to do reggae. But then... Every time he left the Bad Brains, his primary focus were bands like the HR band, which is more of a rock band than a reggae band. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, and I think every different iteration of HR, uh, depending on who's playing, has its own unique sound. Uh, the first album, uh, that's Dave Byers, with you know Joseph you know, directing things. The EP that we put out, you know, you can hear, uh, I think, mine and um, uh, Tico's musical influences. Um, you know, when we came up with those those two songs for um, this, the EP, Keeping Out of Reach, uh, it was a collaborative effort. But it, uh, it, it you know, it's it really it's really interesting to think about it now because I can remember uh, coming up with the chord progressions for those songs. 
you know, while we were rehearsing, we were, we'd go through the set and then we'd work on new material afterwards. Hmm. And Joseph always wanted people to, uh, bring new material to the band, their own songs. So I had a lot of different songs and I think I'm a pretty good songwriter. So, um, Joseph came up with the, you know, we'd record, you know, record the, the music and Joseph would come up with the, um, the lyrics. Uh, and you know, we'd work, you know, as a team to, uh, create the sound you know it, it was uh it was it was an uh, interesting collaboration i honestly think that if now I, hr at that point when it when we like broke up at that point pretty sure it was because the bad brains were being offered support from record labels and they kind of enticed earl and joseph back into the bad brains but i think if hr would that iteration of hr would have stayed together we would have been in living color before there was in living color. Mm, yeah. That's, you know, I think, I think so. Yeah. That's an interesting point. I think like these two songs are just the most, I would say eclectic of HR's entire solo discography. They're just, there's so many musical ideas crammed into these two songs. They're really interesting. Yeah. And uh, I'm not trying to take credit for that, but um, that, I think that has to do with me and also Chico uh, like I said, um, keeping out of reach, power of Trinity. You know, I, I would come up with like the main chord progressions and the changes, and Tico would add things and say, "Let's do this and do that." And so you hear a lot of um, you hear a lot of like uh, I wouldn't call it heavy metal, but you hear like a lot of um, there's a heavy like almost flamingo sound to it from Tico's side, but you also hear like he, what he was involved. He he like like uh, UFO and yeah. Michael Shankar and um, well those two Van those Halen. two worlds really collide maybe not flamenco so much but like classical music mm-hmm. for sure and like you know yeah. people like Ingve Malmsteen and stuff like that was pretty po- pretty popular at the time exactly so you can definitely hear the little bits and pieces in those songs I, a lot of the ideas that we came up with, like the acoustic guitars and the power to Trinity, uh, that was my idea. The, the studio we were in at Q, Q studio over in Falls church had uh, a 12 string guitar and a regular six string. Mm-hmm. And I said, what's, you know, what's, uh, during that, the beginning of the song, I said, so let's let's do it with an acoustic and a twelve string, uh, yeah. you know, and make it chime. Yeah. And uh, I think it made a huge difference in the song. Yeah. Uh, tell me about the sessions. Like, do you know how many days or you know a day these these songs took to record? Oh no, it? we were we were we were probably at Q for uh, about a week. Hmm. And at that point, like I said, that was probably after a year of us being together rehearsing every day uh being on the road we uh had a lot of uh new material like i said joseph you know invited always wanted us to contribute write music also and have our influence uh in the sound and that's probably why that album sounds so different from any other hr album like the first album uh that's joseph and dave byers uh, but the REP, the second EP, um, uh, you can definitely hear our influences. But we also had other songs. Jose contributed. He would write music. Um, and uh, I've written other songs that just 
you know, um, Joseph chose uh, those two songs. Uh, although we had another song called God Against Evil, which used to bring down the house. But I, I had I wrote the music and Joseph wrote the lyrics. And that song would just, everybody loved that song so much. Mm. Uh, actually, I didn't really realize how much people liked that song until I heard a bootleg recording of us live. And uh, the encore for that song was just, you know, everybody just loved that song. It was like the favorite song of, of the people in the crowd. Yeah, you know, these cheers. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna. I don't ask know if you've it. ever heard that bootleg. No, I was gonna ask if there was any recordings of these, some of these unreleased songs or or live tapes from your era. There is. Uh, there we, uh, like I said, we would play up and down the East Coast, and we played in uh, Virginia Beach uh, once, and um, or we used to stop through there and play all the time. But uh, we played there once in this place called Connection Hall. And I'd have to like dig around and try to find the recording. I don't know if I have it, but I did hear it. And uh, it was amazing because that's when we were at our peak uh, as a band. Mm. And uh, it sounded really amazing. And a lot of the other songs that um, we wrote that never made it, never got recorded, um, unfortunately, are on that uh, bootleg recording. Mm-hmm. So if you can uh, find it, it's, it's uh, Hampton Roads Connection Hall. That's what it's called. Okay. HR. Yeah, if you can find it, or if I can find it, I'll send it to you. But yeah, that'd be great. Back to your original question. Uh, it took about a week for us to record those two songs at Q Studios. Right. So the record comes out. You play. I'm assuming you play some more shows. Whatever the band kind of just, I assume fizzles out because there's backroom plans to get the Bad Brains back together. Then what happens? Did you keep playing music? I did. Uh, later on, I was in a band called Albert Strange uh, with uh, Skeeter Thompson from Scream. Hmm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Skeeter. Yep. Skeeter's actually uh, our bass player in the Tummy Models now, ah. uh, although he's in, he's in Troy, New York now, but uh, he uh, played on our first uh, EP release. And um, I, after that, I kind of dropped out of music. I... Um, got married and, you know, had a family and, um, just kind of after HR, I, I don't know, maybe, uh, I was disillusioned. Mm-hmm. I just didn't, uh, get back into it until, until recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, um, yeah, music, you know, just comes to you out of the universe. That's probably what brought me back into playing again. Yeah. Well, it happens. I played in bands myself for many, many years and, kind of just lost interest in it and stopped doing it. I always in the back of my mind think I'll it's one of those things I'll do again someday, but I mean it's not the kind of thing you you want to force either. So Exactly. For me when I'm writing music, it's got to come uh naturally. It's just got to come to me. Yeah. Uh some songs uh like now we're me and Scott Garrett are uh, working on our next release and sometimes the songs just come to me in like 15 minutes and I write a complete song. Mm. Uh, it just happens that way. Sometimes uh, it takes a little bit harder. But those are always the best songs, I think, when they come so naturally, the lyrics just come to you. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, everything just kind of comes together. And that was a, that was a, a great experience uh, when I was in HR also, especially after we'd been together uh, for a while. Uh, we knew our musical styles and... Um, you know, we started writing music 
kind of getting away from the first album and you know having our own kind of set that was a mixture of the first album but also newer music also that we were writing yeah so it was very spontaneous and uh exhilarating tell me some more about the tommy models so the tommy models uh it's based here in washington dc right now scott garrett from the cult is playing drums he's back here in town uh covid kind of uh shut all the musical um venues down so he, he came back home and so um taking advantage of him being here we've um been good friends since high school and he actually got his start uh with us in body count uh, when we opened for asian orange at the wilson center it's basically uh i think um i was talking to uh from stall from scream and he uh the way he described us is that he says we sound like um, the Kinks meet the Buzzcocks. Oh. So I we're kind of uh, and I I'm I don't know if you got a chance to listen to our first release or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'll I'll take that compliment any day because I love both of those bands. Uh, I would like to think that we sound more like the Raspberries meet the Cars, but um, there's a definite uh, power pop vibe to it. For yeah, sure. it's. it's yeah, it's definitely, it's power pop. Um, that's yeah. the music that I'm writing right now. That's just what I've always kind of written. And um, we're rehearsing uh, now, getting ready to go into the studio for our second release. Uh, the first release was kind of done uh, on a shoestring and in the middle of COVID. So uh, a lot of the stuff that was recorded, it was kind of put together uh, and uh, it didn't turn out exactly how I wanted it, but uh, considering the circumstances, uh, we uh, were able to release it on the release date because the single off the EP was a song called 420. So I wanted to release it on 42020. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, uh, not that that had it uh, helped the people listening to the music, but I thought it would. I you know. I think it did. I, you know, we've gotten a lot of uh, people listening to the music, and uh, we just cracked 50k on uh, iTunes, so iTunes streaming. So, well, you know, the EP is doing pretty good, and uh, the next uh, release I think is going to be uh, extremely powerful. I've written a lot of good music, and um, I'm not trying to sound uh, egotistical or conceited. Um, but I think uh, a lot of these songs, this time around, we have time to actually work on the music and perfect it. Yeah. Where the first EP, because of COVID, it was in the time restraints because we wanted to release on 420. We didn't, we weren't able to really perfect the music we wanted the way we really wanted to do it. So um, I've got a talented crew of musicians. Uh, Skeeter's still involved, even though he's in Troy, New York. Uh, our singer Kyle Moriarty is an extremely talented musician and also vocalist. So I think it's the right combination, the right people, and uh, hopefully uh, this, the second release will make a greater impact than the first one now that we have more time to work on it. Yeah. Uh, Post-COVID, do you think you'll be able to play some shows? Yeah, definitely. Um, and that's our goal. The only problem here in Washington, D.C., it seems to be the music scene's kind of dead Mm. unless you're opening for another band uh like a band that's coming through town 
uh, and you've really got to network and uh, use uh, the connections that you had in order to get those kind of gigs. It's doable, uh, and that's what I'd prefer to do. But we might play smaller venues, uh, Comet Ping Pong, hopefully when uh, you know we get back to life, uh, normal life. Uh, Comet Ping Pong is a great place to play. Uh, there's a lot of different local bands play there, and it's a small, tight venue, and uh, you know it's it's got a great vibe and a good place to uh, you know do a live show. Yeah, I I've booked a venue for many years here where I live, and before COVID, I mean, I feel like it's kind of an age thing almost. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in my 40s, and a lot of my friends don't go to shows anymore exactly and i think a lot of 20 year olds also don't go to shows i don't think it's a thing kids are doing right now going to see bands it's not and you know uh, that you know the internet uh, youtube uh, the instant access that people have to all technology now it's a great thing but it also kind of hurts uh, live music, I think. Now, hopefully, you know, after a year, two years of us being, you know, in this COVID situation, people will, you know, come to appreciate live music again and uh, start supporting uh, local bands. Yeah, um, I hope so. Well, that's what I'm hoping. I think another factor is, for me anyways, is my generation, and I'm assuming you know, for you, for sure, growing up in DC, you were, by the time you were, you know, bar age, you had probably been to thousands of shows. So you were totally Uh groomed to, from going to all ages shows. And that just doesn't exist anymore. I mean, there's maybe house shows, but you know, the big hall rental shows full of, you know, 16 year old kids, it just doesn't happen anymore. No, it doesn't. And, uh, Maybe there's a lot of liability involved because of that. But you're right. Um, there was kind of an innocence to it all back then. Um, the uh, I remember uh, Ian used to have these uh, Sunday matinees at the 930 Club, a club I played many times. And um, it was all ages. Uh, there was no alcohol. Uh, it was a matinee, you know, middle of the day on a Sunday. So... Um, it would always be packed. Yeah. It was a, you know, a no brainer. I mean, you know, different bands would come in, mostly local talent, you know, minor threat would play, um, other bands, uh, local bands would play. Uh, and it was a, you know, a great idea that Ian came up with. Yeah. But you just don't see that these days. Yeah. And even if you did, I don't think, uh, the, the music uh, right now, the more popular music for kids that age is rap music. Yeah, it's true. Um, so, and, you know, uh, when we were young, punk rock was the music. And so that was our music, our generation of music. And right now, uh, kids are more focused on listening to rap. It seems to be what, you know, the industry's pushing to the kids. Uh, and every generation has its own genre of music, you know, depending on what, you know, the music industry wants to sell them. Yeah, it's true. I think that has a lot, large impact on it right there. Yeah, it's totally true. Hey, where can people find the Tommy Models? Do, is there a band camp? Uh, Tommy, no, there's no band camp. Uh, Tommy Models is available on every music streaming service 
that you listen to. So if you listen to Spotify, if you listen to iTunes streaming, if you listen to Pandora, anywhere, it's available everywhere. Um, not Bandcamp, though. Okay. For the next release, will there be a physical release? Yes. And I was working with uh, this small independent record label that mostly does vinyl called Scrappy Little Numbers, a very small label out of Colorado. And uh, we're going to try to work something out with them to maybe release uh, an, e an EP or a 45 of the single off our next uh, release. Cool. And maybe with a B-side, with a cool B-side on the other side, too. Right on. Well, we'll keep our eyes peeled for that. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure, and uh, I hope you have a great birthday today. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So cool to have Mark on and hear like what it was like in the band at the time to put together these these tracks. It was also interesting to me to hear you guys talk about live music and uh, to think about that um, in terms of like what I have observed and how much I miss it right now and can't wait for it to just explode, hopefully, once <laughs> all this bullshit is over. Yeah. Um, but we shall see. Yeah, some cool things. Uh, I don't know if we knew that Doc Knight played in Body Count. So that was cool. Mm -hmm. um, an interesting comment that he made about they were living color before there was a living color. Yes, very true. Yeah, totally true. Um, I want to know more about this band. I think he says Albert Strange with Skeeter yep. Thompson. Yep. Do you know anything about that band? I don't, but uh, I'm going to be looking into it for sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, I've I've been a a big Scream fan for a long time and love Skeeter's work, so yeah. I got to check it out. The Tommy Models, his new band. Cool, really cool EP. I'm looking forward to the full length. Uh, yeah, like I mentioned, Peter Moffat is, is on that recording too from, uh, well, you mentioned Burning Airlines, Wool. Government yep. issue, Foxhall Stacks. Yep, that's right. A band we've talked about, or you've talked about before. Let's listen to these tracks, Ryan. History Lesson, Part 2. All right, man, can I hit you with a Spaceman spiel before we get into these tracks? Of course. All right, HR, Keep Out of Reach, from the SST catalog, Michael Whitaker. Keep out of reach of the money-grubbing boss man who tries to break your spirit. Keep out of reach of the forces of evil that try to keep you from your destiny. Keep out of reach of the people who will try to steer you wrong. The classic three-tune HR solo release is again available. SST 177 on 12-inch. And then it also says it's included on SST 171. Hmm. Yeah, so I didn't really make a ton of notes on these tracks because we... We kind of went over them in episode 171. Uh, but yeah, it's three tracks. I really noted the pretty killer production, like multi-tracked vocals, uh, like uh, especially on Keep Out of Reach. Yep. You've got, I assume it's Tico just busting out insane arpeggios. Yeah, the, the second half of the song, there's some incredible wailing, vocal and guitar wailing. Yeah. 
I was kind of digging the dub remix a little bit more this time around, I think. Mm-hmm. Like I said, maybe just hearing these three songs alone instead of tacked on to the end of It's About Love. Yeah, well, I agree, because it's actually, when you listen to the EP on its own, you realize how catchy Keep Out of Reach is. It's a really catchy tune. Yeah. We both love Power of the Trinity. Total Maiden vibes on this one. The end of this song, <laughs> like before it goes into the weird ska type thing, it sounds like a Maiden song called Back in the Village, almost, off of Power Slave. What a missed opportunity, man, that this lineup didn't do a full length. Yeah, no kidding. They probably could have with, uh, you know, give them another couple of months, probably. Oh, yeah, man. Well, or at least an extended EP because that live bootleg has some unreleased stuff on it. Mm -hmm. Hey, Ryan, I probably should have put this in history lesson, but I found a little thing on Tico. Lay it on me. I'm probably going to butcher this, but his actual name is Tarcuato Zamora. He started playing at age eight, taking lessons from his dad. Tico Zamora Sr., an accomplished flamenco guitarist from Spain. As a teenager, he got into classic rock through his older sister, and he got an electric guitar, and at age 16, joined the HR band. Following uh, the HR band, he moved to Athens, Georgia, and ended up playing in Velvet Underground drummer Maureen Tucker's band. She asked him to be the touring guitarist opening for Lou Reed on the New York tour in 1990. Oh, no way. After that, he moved to Berlin at some point. Uh, He played in this German punk band that I've talked about before called Jingo de Lunch, which is really cool. I definitely did not know that. Uh, Looks like he did some producing. His Discogs is totally fucked, Uh, but I I did some digging around. He produced some stuff, uh, played on this record and produced... uh, a bunch of stuff by this guy calling himself Boy from Brazil. He played on a Mecca Normal album called Sitting on Snaps, which came out on Matador in 1995. One interesting thing I found is a single called T-Zilly on German label Teenage Kicks. Pretty sure the cover photo is Tico, a.k.a. T-Zilly. And the hype sticker says X-Mo Tucker and X-Half Japanese. And he played all the instruments on that single, so I'm guessing he was in half Japanese at some point. Wouldn't surprise me. There were some of the folks on the Bouncing Babies, right? Yep. In half Japanese, so there's definitely some D.C., Virginia, Maryland connections there. Yeah. Let's talk about the artwork, Ryan. It's pretty, pretty bare bones. Yeah, it comes in a, a 12-inch sleeve with the whole cut out kind of like that we were talking like um like a reggae dub 12 inch type of style yep um i actually i have the sst full size cd i guess but i've also got the olive tree 12 inch and the olive tree 12 inch has got a wicked like the star, star of david yeah star david yeah yep. wicked looking and the got the cool uh, olive tree symbol there with the cross in the trunk of the tree and the uh the roots going out kind of like uh tentacles um very cool yeah um also got the insert which has got this cool uh you can tell it's totally cut and paste photocopied like collage of all of these images of i i would say like you know strife 
suffering and oppressors hmm. with these uh, little cutouts. Um, it's hard to read the wording. This is like a really old, poor quality photocopy that would have been in there. But like the keep out of reach and olive tree, they're definitely just like, you know, Elmer's glued on and brought to the photo lab to uh, to get some copies made. And then on the flip, it's got wicked pictures of all of the all the band at the time. Yeah, we talked about those pictures on the HR tapes. Most of that would have been probably put together by James Riley. He definitely like drew the HR logo. Yeah. Did all the like that cool keep out of reach in that metal looking font. Yep. Yep. Um, it also has um, it also says side A is called side top and side B is called side bottom. Um, it says also in the liner notes here on the insert, all praises unto Ja Rastafari, Emperor Haile Selassie, I, premier thanks unto the beloved prophet God and the 12 tribes of Israel. Then it has a, uh, a thank you list on it. Some names that we would recognize, Sly and Robbie, Zion Train, Beefeater, Outrage, Bad Brains, Doc Knight, Ross Michael, Julie Bird, Winnie and Nelson Mandela, hmm. Mr. and Mrs. Leon Hudson, Alec McKay, and all the Utemans Dem. Extra special thanks to my son, Simeon. And then um, it, it lists the credits just like it does on the SST CD. But on the insert, it, uh, it also says, and it does not say this on the CD, it says, give thanks to Roland Varesco. Who I, I wasn't able to find out anything about. Hmm. It, then it says, of course, you know, produced by David Byers. We know that. Um, engineered by Jeff Jeffrey, Jim Ebert, and John Bale. Q Recordings, Falls Church, Virginia, Spring '85. Yeah, the SST 12-inch has a hype sticker that says featuring Josephine and Earl Hudson of Bad Brains on it. Ah, ballot result. Ballot result. We picked one of these already, didn't we? Yeah, we picked Keep Out of Reach for the HR tapes. Ah, that makes it easy then, doesn't it? Yep, yep, Keep Out of Reach dub version. <laughs> <laughs> Look, as catchy as it is, man, we got to go with the power of the Trinity. Come on. Yeah, for sure, man. Awesome track. Hey, there's no dead wax on that olive tree record is there no not that i not that i recall let me check no it just says it just has like on the run out grooves you know like the catalog number otr mm -hmm. 105 no it's too bad that would have been cool yeah it's a pretty i probably should put it in a different sleeve it's a pretty scuffed up copy that i have mm. someone someone has been uh really violent with the white paper sleeve on this 12 inch over the years <laughs> right on hey thanks to mark for being on the show man everybody go check out the tommy models totally ryan what's next week next week brant we've got another band that we have had on before but it's been a long time since we've had them on it's sst 178 the painted willy relics lp yeah i love painted willy Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. 
We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.